Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Numbers, your statistics and sports podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corbin Heller. And today we're doing the movies edition yet again. Uh, we've got the 2017 movie Blade Runner 2049. We've got the 1940 film The Great Dictator. Corwin, are you ready to talk some cinema? I'm ready, Josh. Uh, where would you like to start? Uh, once, you know, once again, like always, I am, excuse me, very open-ended. I don't care. Um, that's ah, a problem. I don't think there's a good, I have a good choice for which one I have more or less to say about. Let's start with The Great Dictator. We'll go in the order in which I have them on my, uh, on my, in front of me on my computer. Just do whatever I got. All right. So, uh, The Great Dictator from 1940, it is, uh, written, directed, and starring Charlie Chaplin. Um, it also stars uh, Paulette Goddard and Jackie o- Jack Oakey. Um, it was nominated for five Oscars. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Charlie Chaplin, um, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Jack Oakey, Best Writing for Charlie Chaplin, and Best Music Original Score for Meredith Wilson. Uh, it had an estimated budget of $2 million and... Its cumulative worldwide gross was nine hundred sixty nine thousand, which just does not seem possible because I'm pretty sure this is Charlie Chaplin's most successful film, and I definitely don't think he ran a deficit in every film he ever made. So I'm going to go ahead and say that's probably not accurate. Uh, anyway, I mean, I can't imagine what nine hundred, you know, and change thousand would be in today's dollars i don't know if it's just adjusted for inflation because naturally would just cost less to go see a movie i have to imagine there's some issues with like the direct relation of however much these costs are calculated because that just doesn't seem right yeah i either either the the 969,000 super wrong or the 2 million dollar estimated budget super wrong but either way one of those seems super wrong <laughs> um the tagline is once again the whole world laughs which is a weird tagline for this film um but oh well uh I corwin mean, all things what? considered one of the better ones cuz oh definitely low so bar simple yep low bar low low bar just tell me what you thought of this uh, I'm going to be honest, I was immediately surprised that it wasn't a silent film, because this was my first time seeing The Great Dictator. I had forgotten how many times I've heard about the final speech given at the end of The Great Dictator, uh, and I kind of just went into it deaf, dumb, and blind, um, and uh, yeah, so that like jumped out at me. It's like, holy shit, I can hear him, I can hear Charlie Chapin. Like, this is a thing. Uh, but yeah, I got over that really quickly, because sound surprisingly is not you know as crazy as it would have been in 1940 when you're watching a movie um but all things considered you know i thought this was a very relatable film a very uh i I don't know how to word this but it's very it's something that is very oh my god vocab is just evergreen today i'm sorry evergreen sure timeless uh, i i would say more relevant than anything uh, okay if i was going to pick a word just because of everything that's going on and the fact that you know the direct relation of these kinds of basically the the whole thing of neo-nazis and nazis roaming the streets attacking you know ethnic groups of you know ethnic minorities and everything that's going on and an absolutely crazy leader and everything like all the like jokes about it is like haha that's funny but like deep down it's like this came out 80 years ago and it's still a movie that you could make today and it would be the same jokes and the same points and nothing really, you know, deep down has changed. Um, and that made me sad. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty bittersweet in that way. You know, it, it in some aspects feels a little bit locked in time because you have very, very 1930s and 40s German military um, pol- political look about it. But the the bumbling nature of it all uh, it strikes such a chord for what's going on in the world today. Um, so the film basically follows two versions of Charlie Chaplin. Uh, one version of him is a Jew who served in World War One, and then um, suffered a Rip Van Winkle situation and woke up um, a little bit, some, some, a few years later on, to find that uh, you know the, the Jewish ghetto has gotten worse. That um, Adenoid Hinkle has gotten to power, um, which is a character also played by Charlie Chaplin. Um, and that, that the there are now... Guy? <clears throat> what? <laughs> um, and the, and uh, um, police are now s- patrolling the streets to just kind of harass the Jews that are living in the, in the ghettos. Um, and then the other half of the story is Charlie Chaplin playing the Adenoid Hinkle character, the, the Adolf Hitler type um bumbling his way through politics and the war um i generally say attacking places because he got told he should um attacking people because he thought they they should be attacked um being an all-around goofball while pretending to be a, a tough guy oh that doesn't sound familiar does it you know, attacking certain groups to certain extents because it attracts or distracts the people from the real issues at hand in the country. You know, yeah, completely unrelatable. And and it, it's it's a bizarre watch for for some of the like those types of reasons that you were just saying because like I, there's one point where one of um, Hinkle's advisors, um, um, hair, hair garbage, I believe. Uh, basically said people need something to hate. You know, if you if you burn down um, uh, a thing, if you, I think if you, if you set fire to some more Jewish houses, uh, people will, won't realize that they're hungry. Or, or if you uh, if you start if you start riling the masses up by reigniting this hatred, people won't realize that they don't have food on the table. And it's like a ludicrous statement. That is also true. Which adds to the funny but sad nature of this film. Yeah, I feel like this would have been a... In 1939, 1937, uh, this would have been a very funny film. In 1940, 1941, excuse me, it would be a a pretty funny film. Uh, Today, or in like 1944, 45, it's a, you understand it's funny, but at the same time, an incredibly painful film to watch just because of the brutal nature and accuracy of what it's saying and what it's portraying. And All right, so... One of my one of my first notes here is that the kind of on a lighter note, um, the, the the goofy war beginning, um, where where Jew, Jewish Charlie Chaplin is just kind of fumbling around World War One, uh, yeah, that could have been like the entire movie. That'd have been okay, right? Like it felt like, uh, man, I I feel like there was a scene like that in like an old Groucho Marx movie. Um, I want to say it was like something to do with a duck, um, duck soup. Duck soup. Yeah, it Great. reminded me of that. If that is, you know, an existing thing, I honestly haven't seen duck soup in like maybe since high school, so I couldn't say for sure. But it reminded me of the Mandela effect, essentially. Uh, but yeah, it was it was hilarious. It's exactly what you would expect out of a classic old timey Charlie Chaplin movie. And it just happened to be significantly more than that throughout. Yeah, and it, it, it it's so interesting to like have this movie constantly be going back and forth between 
here are some atrocities, and I'm like, here's an Adolf Hitler type playing with a, a lightweight globe and then popping it. <laughs> like, throwing that ass back to, like, bump a globe up into the air. <laughs> that um, was, like, one of those bits where it was, like, I was watching and I was like, I don't know if this is, like, taking forever or just, like, I'm not used to gags. Like, I don't know, like, what this is, but, like, this is still funny. Like, I'm, I wasn't sure if it was super long and just consistently funny throughout or it just felt that way. Like, it just felt like it was a well-bodied joke that had some, like, I, I don't even know what I'm getting at. I enjoyed the joke. That's that. It was a quality, quality joke. Um, and... So one of the one of the next notes I have is what do you think of the the concept of this film, which is to uh, the the idea of attacking, um, I guess more broadly political figures, but or, or more narrowly political figures, or more broadly those with whom you have ideological differences, uh, by by means of, um, insulting their their incompetence, you know, because he's it, this isn't like he's debating the ideologies of the German government per se, uh, although he certainly puts on display what his views are, um, but he mostly denigrates them by showing them as being fucking idiots. You know? Uh, it's one of those things where I personally enjoy it because it's one of those things where, like, if you had someone who believed in those, you know, fascist, Nazi, ideologies they could watch this laugh along at the jokes without realizing they themselves are the punchline um and i think that can be you know one of the most effective methods at poking fun and you know making these points against you know radicalized ideologies um but at the same time i could definitely understand why this in particular is too serious of a topic to kind of only make fun of through comedy and not really fight in a more serious tone because of the both the stakes and the inevitable results that occurred to these you know fascist governments and you know we talked about this previously when we picked the movies um chaplin himself had regretted making this movie. Um, he was quoted in saying, uh, had I known the actual horrors of the German concentration camps, I could not have made the great dictator. I could not have made fun of the homicidal insanity of the Nazis. And I understand that. You know, this movie was made in 1940. Uh, you know, the Nazi party had already come to power in Germany at that time. Um, they had already, you know, started conflicts and started wars throughout Europe. Uh, when I assume this had started being filmed, you know, in 1939, you know, September that year, they invaded Poland. Um, it's one of those things where you didn't know the extent to which this would go. And at the time you filmed this and it's like, all right. You know, this is a shitty government. They have awful opinions and awful, you know, again, ideologies. But you don't know how far they would end up taking it. Um, and of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. I get the remorse. I get the regret. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those things where it's better to have made this, you know, leading up to these atrocities so that you know, people have this idea that this is ridiculous and should be thought of as ridiculous and not give any, you know, rational thought or sympathy to these governments, these leaders. And, you know, you laugh about sympathizing with these authoritarians, but, I mean, we see it happening now. Um, so I'm glad this was made. I'm glad Charlie Chapman, of all people, did it. I'm glad they made it to the quality that it was made. Um, but I also very much get why he would regret making it. Absolutely. I, like I have 
straight very far from the original question, and I forget what it originally was. So go ahead. No, Bob. um, I, I, I think I think you you nailed it pretty much. The, the the question was, what do you think of the the general concept of this film being the manner in which it attacks these governments? But at the end of the day, like the, that question really is the question of wh- what. By, by what manner do you want to discuss these topics? And I completely agree with your point, which is this shit's terrifying to talk about. And what the German government was was doing, I mean, God, no one could have predicted. Like, no, no, no one in 1940 could have seen what was going to happen, uh, what reveals were awaiting them in 1945 when the war ended. And to speak again to one of the, the points that you made, to just to, to speak on how quickly shifting the politics of the situation was um when charlie chapman was filming this this movie uh it was england was preparing to ban it because they were still in the mode of appeasing uh the the nazi regime in germany and by the time the film was finished and ready to be put um into uh theaters they were fully at war with germany and were all about putting it out to increase uh the support from the English people in, in the war effort that like, that's how fast everything changed. Um, and so while it's not really a propaganda movie, I don't think because it doesn't take the side of anything that's in reality. It parodies real life events and has a argument. I don't think that makes it propaganda. I can certainly see how it's beneficial. It would have been beneficial at the time because one of the great things about comedy is that it can, it can make difficult to discuss topics accessible, and it can reach audiences that typical political discourse won't necessarily touch. Mm, like, so there's a certain sect of the, uh, of the populace for any country that is going to go to a comedy show or go see a comedy film that won't be turning on whatever the most prestigious form of news network is in your region. You know, there is a group of people in the United States that are going to tune into a Will Ferrell movie that won't be popping on CNN at four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, mm-hmm. and like, so to have a film take, a, uh, uh, to, to have a film talk about these types of things has a lot of value that even though I understand why Chaplin in the later years ended up regretting making it, I, I still see the benefit of having it. You know, you raised a really great point, and uh, you know, politics, especially you know, especially now, especially then, politics can be just a such such a heavy topic, such a a weight that you kind of have to put up with because of its importance. Um, and comedy really does alleviate some of that weight. You know, movies are a big deal. You know, like I don't know, you know, how the inflation directly correlates but it's an investment going to see a movie but with both you know time and money and when the world is in such a dark state as it is in certain periods of time you don't want to use that precious free time that you do have to to be weighed down more you know you want to have that that relief that you know mental freedom to you know relax and not be burdened with reality and you know something like the great dictator is fantastic in that yes it would do a really great job of informing people of the atrocities of what was going on in nazi germany and also is light and funny enough to make it enjoyable to watch and something that would reach a large audience of people much larger than it would if it was a, a documentary or you know a, a political hit piece. Um, so I think it's very effective in that when a political comedy is done well, the audience that you can reach is you know magnified than what it would be with the same message in just a different format. And to, to, to just even compound upon this point that we, we're now spending a, a decent chunk of time on, which I think is appropriate given what this movie is. Uh, one of the other notes I have written down here is this movie versus The Death of Stalin. And because both of these films are doing relatively similar things in which they're portraying 
um, dictators, dictated, dictatorships. There we go. Um, and portraying both of them as bumbling idiots and everyone around them as either a conniving monster or a bumbling idiot. Mm-hmm. And the, but the difference between the films themselves is dramatic in part because they were made, you know, 77 years apart. Um, but also, no one seeing the death of Stalin wasn't already going to agree with what the movie was saying because it was a independent film uh, that had like a pretty limited release. It was very, it was from like very prestige cinema in a lot of respects. It had a, a lot of like, you know, Sp- certain types of actors and certain types of people involved in the filmmaking process that all led itself to be le- um, attracting a certain audience. Whereas uh, The Great Dictator, it's comedy of the time. You know, there's obvious political points being made, but the slapstick comedy that you see with, like, you know, the stormtroopers getting bopped on the head by a frying pan, like, that's... That's... Uh, working man's comedy there, you know? Right. And ex- yeah, exactly. Like it's something you'd see straight out of straight out of uh, uh, the Three Stooges, you know. And and again, being able to provide high level concepts um, in in low level formats is very very valuable towards a society and towards art in general. It's one of the reasons art is important. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I really do. You, do you have any points about like? things that happen in the movie because we spent a lot of time talking about the thesis of the film which i think is fine but we haven't really talked about like the plot or anything i mean i found another point about him playing with the balloon <laughs> yeah it reminded me also of the dance number from the always sunny episode mac finds his pride okay and I, can't, I can't remember how he dances with the balloon well enough to know why it made me think of that but you know it's a note and i gotta you know i gotta be truthful to the notes i gotta stick with them so i just gotta share it to the people and it has been shared um probably top 10 always sunday episode for me there oh absolutely great episode Um, so off note for them but i love the Uh i love it yeah, I mean, no, I'll save it for if we ever actually discuss Always Sunny. Um, Fair. But going back to, you know, the actual plot points, uh, at one point I had to have, like, stood up and, like, turned around or looked down to respond to a text or something during it. Because he, you know, Charlie Chapman started giving his speech. And while I could see that those two were going to get switched at some point just because they are the exact same character and look identical. I must have missed the actual switch. Because I was like, what the fuck set this off? Like, how has this character turned a 180? Like, what is going on? And I had to rewind past, you know, what I had seen just to find the actual point. And, um, you know, as far as it goes, it wasn't the smoothest of transitions, you know, but it made a lot of sense, and I like how it, like it's hard for me to look back and say, "Oh, that wasn't you know original." Well, we've seen that a thousand times, but like this was the original, you know. Like this has what been this is what caused every other movie to use these kind of cliches of these two walking in, you know, headstrong and just like. No one noticing, everyone believing it, and just going with it. Um, And it was funny, you know, after getting past the fact that I've seen this before, because obviously I have, it was really cool to see the kind of um, genesis of these, uh, of a lot of cliches. And one of the the things that just Charlie Chaplin's known for is, you know, being... Being one of the early pioneers of like film is going to lend yourself pretty readily towards being the originator of a lot of concepts. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, hilarious how that works. Um, I agree that it, it is definitely like you. It, it's easy to miss the point at which they switch. <laughs> um, 
and I, it definitely is just there as a vehicle to get the final speech to happen. But at the end of the day, given the type of film this is, I think anyone watching that would just accept it yeah. because it works. And at the end of the day, you can do you can do whatever the fuck you want in any type of movie as long as it works. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, like th- there's there's a lot of nuance in this film because again of the subject matter, it it would take a much longer form discussion than I think either of us are really prepared to give, just because there's so much detail. Um, that there is to discuss, and there's so much politics of the era that there is to discuss. And I think it might be best to kind of cut it off where we've where we've left it. Um, unless you have any final points, um, I do have you know a note here. Uh, a man named Epstein using his wealth to facilitate the oppression of others and support authoritarian government. Irony is just a myth, and time is a flat circle. But you know we knew that already. Um, that was one of those, like it happened really early on. And I honestly don't even remember specifically how it ended up. I think he might've even like turned it down, but that doesn't fit my narrative. So I'm just not going to emphasize that any more than I clearly already am. Um, but it was like, wow, like this is, this was, that was one of those points where it was like, this, this is not a joke. Like this is reality. And I'm sad again. Yeah. That point made me mad. Um, and I don't understand why it's in the film because it serves no good purpose. Um, and it, it, cause it all, all that scene does or that moment is perpetuate a, um, longstanding anti-Semitic piece of rhetoric that the Jews funded the Holocaust that like the rich, wealthy Jews who control all the money in Europe funded the Holocaust to kill all the poor Jews. Um, which is, obviously false um and uh dangerous uh, of a of a point to make and it really didn't seem to make any sense to have that scene in there because it goes pretty well against what chaplin's trying to say i think it might because they also followed up with uh hair garbage talking about how um a, you know epstein might not go for it but the board is largely um, Aryan, so so we should be fine. Um, so I I I guess maybe he's trying to say that if there were Jews funding the Holocaust, that they were unwittingly led to do so as a result of the greater German populace. But it's still a bizarre moment. Um, in this otherwise pretty, um, I'll say liberal of a film. It's weird. It's a very weird line. Maybe it's those authoritarians just projecting themselves out like, you know, nobody else does in modern times. Because it's not like they would sell out their own people, uh, you know, to better themselves in any capacity. I, yeah, I, I got no clue. Uh, why don't you give me, uh, do you have any, any other points before we do ratings and reviews? Um, yeah, I could do that if I can pull my notes up real quick, which I did because it was easy. Um, as a movie from this period, uh, I think it's very much mature beyond its years. Um, and you can tell, you know, through the audio mixing, acting style of the writing and dialogue that it does exist in that place and time. You know, it's, it's clearly from that period. Like, I'm not going to argue that, but. The way they present the narrative, the way they present the tones, it feels like a movie that could be released now. Um, and, you know, I had never seen this before, but I have seen other Chaplin movies, you know, that came out, you know, significantly earlier. I've seen other movies from a few years before this, around this time. And I don't think any have felt quite as modern as this. Uh, and as someone who isn't necessarily a huge fan of older movies because of the the style, uh, I really appreciated it. Um, you know, at the same time, it's it has its flaws. It's not perfect, but it's a hell of a movie. Uh, I guess I'll just go right into my rating. Uh, I'm going to give this a three and a half out of five. All right. I I don't think you're wrong. Um, 
I'm not going to give it too much of a higher grade. I'm going to give it a four. I don't. It's weird to say I don't think this is Chaplin's best film because I think it's probably his one of his most. It's definitely one of his most famous. It's I think certainly his best grossing. Um, but I think if you're looking for Chaplin specific films, there are better ones to get an idea of who he was um, as a comic and as a filmmaker. I think this is probably his most personal film. It's definitely the one he gets the most emotional in. Although the the movie The Kid has a lot of really touching moments in it. Um, I'm a big Chaplin fan. Um, this is if I was to direct someone who's never seen a Chaplin film to one, this is not where I would start. Um, not speaking ill of the film, although I think it does have, I think it's I think it's really great in a lot of its own ways, but I think it lacks in some areas, um, mainly that the plot doesn't have too much to it. You kind of know where it's going to go the whole film, and then it goes there. And that's part of what happens when you have a film that everyone knows where what their thesis is. And that's not bad. It definitely doesn't make it bad. I still enjoy it, and I... Um, I obviously sentimentalize with it greatly. Um, it has a lot of personal meaning to me as a Jewish person. Um, but at the same time... You're Jewish. Uh, sometimes. Uh, every now and then. Um, only on Shabbos. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but it... I'm going to give it a four. I, I think this is a really good movie. I don't think it, it's, it's quite in the echelon of the four and a halfs and fives. But I, 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 I thoroughly enjoy this film. Um, for all the reasons we've mentioned previously. You know, just to speak on your point of, like, the simplistic narrative, um, I just maybe shorting the, the filmmakers of this time, I really just kind of chalked it up to the fact that, yeah, film had been out for uh, a good while at this point, but at the same time, I can't think of many films from the time period that had really any complex narrative storytelling um oh visit of oz gone with the wind dw griffith films although they're super offensive had all had very complicated plots all right so that goes my point because you instantly proved me wrong but you know it it wasn't i i really just don't chalk up that time period with you know the kind of depth that we have now just because I kind of, you know what, I'll just say it. I, I bet viewers back then weren't as attuned to, you know, those, the layering involved and all that. Essentially, you know, they were dumber back then. And that's, you know, me working my way around the point because that's obviously the truth. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I never, I kind of, I want to say bite my tongue, but I kind of just forgave that aspect because I just, thought of that being a thing of the time but you know you did prove it's, me wrong so it, it's more of a chaplain thing which again is why i wouldn't start someone with this film but yeah, yeah. we can move when on you think of charlie chapman what do you think what film jumps to mind instead of this um it's a combo one-two punch for me i think of city lights and um the kid i think of modern times just because that was the first one i've seen of his Montam is also a great one. Um, sorry, Limelight. I always do this. Limelight, not City Lights. Limelight. Um, but anyway. Oh, yeah, right. well, well, let's move on to Bl- Bl- Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 came out in 2017. Those are a lot of numbers. It was uh, directed by Del- Dennis Villanueva. Uh, it was written by... Hampton Fancher, there's no way that's a real person. Um, Michael Green, also Hampton Fancher again. Um, and Philip K. Dick, who wrote the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, um, which is the book that the original Blade Runner is based off of. It stars Ryan Gosling, Dave Bautista, Robin Wright, uh, Anna de Armas, um, Harrison Ford, Jared Leto. More people that I'm sure we all know and love. That's his name. Yes. Um, yeah, there you go. It had an estimated budget of $150 million and has a cumulative worldwide gross of $260 million. So that makes it a success. 
Um, not a smash success, but that makes it a success, certainly. Grossing uh, or netting over $100 million, definitely <laughs> better than losing. Um, its tagline, the key to the future is finally unearthed. Also one of the better ones we've heard. Um, it also won two Oscars amongst um, how many nominations here? Five nominations. It won for Best Achievement in Cinematography for Roger Deakins. This is the film that finally got Roger Deakins the Oscar. Um, my God, it was like a running fucking joke. Huh? Freaky Deakin, man. I love him so much. He's so fucking good. Roger, Roger Deakins, for anyone unaware, had been nominated for the Oscar in 1995, 1997, 1998, 2001, 2002, 2008, for two different movies in 2008, uh, 2009, 2011, 2013, um, it also won for Best Achievement in Visual Effects for a bunch of people, Best Achievement in Sound Editing, Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, and Best Achievement in Production Design are the three Oscars it was nominated for but did not win. Core, when what did you think of this movie? Um, I mean, I'll come right out and say it. You know, I speak with a lot of hyperbole. Uh, I am definitely very hyperbolic in this podcast. Uh, you know, this was the coolest thing ever. Oh, I love that. One of my favorites all time. Blah, 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 blah. You get it. Uh, no hyperbole. This is the most beautiful film I have ever seen in my entire life. Uh, and I can honestly say that you will not find a movie that I have seen and loved that will compete. Um, I just cannot get over the, you know, the color grading, how unbelievably unbelievable the cgi is in this movie um i know when you talk about cgi being you know unbelievable it's usually a negative phrase but i still to this day cannot comprehend how complex it was and how seamless it is um i just i i kiss like watching this for like the third time i still can't get over how beautiful this movie is um, I mean, you know, Roger Deakins is, you know, I, one of the most influential people in Hollywood history. You know, the way he shoots movies, his success dating back decades, you know, everything he does, he makes significantly better. And this is, you know, his pinnacle. This is, while he's so deserving of winning an Oscar for this. This being his first is just fantastic, even though he should have won one years and years ago. Um, you know, I I love this movie to death. Uh, that being said, it's not perfect. Um, you know, the story is not the easiest to follow. Uh, I'm a big proponent of show, don't tell. But even then, you know, this kind of takes that to the extreme where they don't always exactly tell you what you're supposed to be seeing or hint at what you're supposed to be seeing. Um, and it runs into, runs into some issues there. And then, uh, you know, to close out with a very negative point, whoever mixed the audio for this movie, just, you need to understand that the people seeing the movie for like the first, second, and even third time don't know exactly what's being said. So, don't make the audio almost inaudible in some scenes and then have the rest of the audio mix be just blowing out speakers in others because it makes it impossible to follow along. And I just, it's, ugh, I, I, I'm passing it off because that's just, it drives me nuts. Biggest pet peeve. Yeah, it's such like an early 2000s thing to do. And it, it's infuriating that two of the Oscars this film was nominated for was sound editing and sound mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, sound but, editing, sure. Sound mixing, get out of here. This film, I, I, I always think it's funny that any film that has like a large color palette automatically gets called stylized. It's mm-hmm. not that it's wrong. I just think it's funny that like we've decided that having a lot of colors in your films make you stylized. Uh, but um, 
The film's fucking gorgeous. I mean, if nothing else, it's a two and a half hour long, sorry, two hour and 44 minute long um, color palette extravaganza. Um, I have a deep affection for the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's one of my favorite books. Um, I am such a fan of it. I hate, hate, hate the original Blade Runner um, because of how much it disrespected the book, which is beautiful. Um, And this film, Blade Runner 2049, I think does a significantly better job of touching on a a lot of the themes from the book. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think... So it's a short fucking book. It's a really short... Like, you could read the whole book in, like, a day. Like, it's not a big book. Um, So, obviously, this movie goes in a lot of different places, and it's obviously a sequel to a book that the book never had. But I love the fact that it gives you a world. And this is one of the the few notes that I have written, because I didn't write a lot of notes for this. Um, This film is, in my mind, one that you have to be ready to be a part of. You cannot watch it. You must experience it. Otherwise, you're never oh, going yeah. to get anything out of it. Oh, because yeah. it's a slow film. It's not a ton of dialogue. The mm-hmm. plot is present, but can be a little bit tricky. Um, and it's, it's a feast for the eyes. But it... it it's not gonna. It's not gonna be like a bang bang. Like you're not gonna be plowing your way through it. There's not gonna be a lot of exposition. You know, it's not like a who done it. Like y- you got to be prepared to exist in the world that this movie wants you to exist in, and be comfortable sitting in that, and just taking it in as it moves along throughout the plot points that it chooses to express with you. And I think it does that to such a beautiful degree. Like I, my my very first note is so much of the beginning is set up of the world, but it's fascinating. And that's important because no one's going to have a problem with you giving intro and background that takes a while. If it's a good journey, if you, if it's an interesting ride and what this film doesn't give too much of in the way of like snappy dialogue and like it has explosions and fights, but I wouldn't say it's like Michael Bay. Um, it really makes, you know, does, does a lot of good work in just, making what you're seeing look interesting Mm -hmm. the costumes are fascinating the the um the the science fictiony machines are are awesome the the worlds feel very authentic and that uh, is exactly what i'd want out of this movie this movie in particular Mm -hmm. oh god just like thinking about seeing the visuals in this movie is exciting like that's how impactful they are. Um man, I I really loved watching this. Um you know, touching on the the CGI again. Um whether it's, you know, recreating Rachel from the first film, whether it's, you know, superimposing two actresses on top of each other simultaneously, you know, without using any mocap without using you know complete cgi is unbelievable um you know uh so basically to recreate rachel they took and scanned original scenes from the original movie basically superimposed them on a mix of a stand-in actress who basically was the body in all the scenes and then a de-aged version of the original actress's face to get the facial movements and tones right um, for scenes where like they couldn't just use the same shots from the original movie. And I think far and away, it's the best completely digital recreation of an older character that we've seen. You know, we've seen it in Star Wars with... Princess Leia, uh, Moff Tarkin, and you know we've seen it with Paul Walker, and it doesn't quite get past that you know uncanny valley. Like you can tell looking at them immediately that okay, that's CGI. It's good. Oh, it's really good, but it's still CGI. 
this is the first time I've seen something where I couldn't tell if it broke through or not because I know it's CGI. At the same time, if you told me it was an actress and, you know, some of uh, you know the softness and whatnot is just from the just great way they lit the scene. I would have believed you and been like, okay, that's just a, a you know a really well done you know makeup on a on a different person, whatever it may be. That looks like it could be the same actress from Blade Runner. Um, and being able to do that is just phenomenal. Um, do you have any idea how they? shot the superimposed, you know, Ana de Armas and prostitute lady together. Oh, I kind of that's just, the biggest thing for me. No, I have no idea. I kind of just assumed that it was uh, some funky green screen work. Is the, is there a story there? So both of the um oh, how do I phrase it? Um both of the performances for this scene are done by the real actresses. It's not, you know, digitally created, you know, they're the real performances. That's how it looks so great so consistently for what ends up being a, a fairly long scene. Um, basically, what they did was they had both actresses perform the scene individually, back to back, just doing take after take after take, you know, together so that it was perfectly lined up. And then what they did was uh, they weren't wearing any mocap suits. So basically they didn't have any points of reference when they went in, you know, to computer generate those images. So they just had a bunch of, you know, actual film cameras filming these different performances, you know, back and forth and recreated it, you know, by hand, you know, and, you know, by hand morph these shots together um and it's uh, it's perfect like i can't i mean you can tell by the way i'm talking about it like i just can't get over how how amazing it is what's more impressive to you the way that they made this movie or the black hole shot from interstellar uh that's so hard because i mean it has to be the black hole shot right because that's what like they did the science like they figured they that published out both a to... they published both a a computer science article on it um and and a physics article on it because it gave them a deeper understanding of black holes right like the the makers of the movie figured out how black holes worked you know visually with the you know ar- the horizon of sucking in all that light and everything just to create that shot and you know that's the leading hypothesis the leading theory however you want to you know define it that the scientific community agrees upon which is nuts um and like the amount of time and processing power it took to create that shot is you know on you know it's, it's a number too big for you to even like comprehend like it goes past that point of comprehensible size um this artistically is more impressive but that is just on a whole different level just because of i mean they did this so right right i understand um all right so let's talk a little bit about the plot of this film um high level ryan gosling is a blade runner so he goes to go uh kill rogue um androids replicants there we go replicants Mm -hmm. and uh they discovers along the way after killing one of them that he had like an a replicant wife that gave birth uh and then like this all leads back to like oh my god can replicants give birth that means that they're more human than we give them credit for that means we can't just kill them you know, it enters into the moral quandary, and then his company that, uh, I guess it's just the LAPD, really, um, sent him off on a mission to go find the child that was born so that he can kill her to squash any possibility of this coming up again. Then he tracks it down to 
uh, Deckard from the uh, original film, Harrison Ford, um, who ends up revealing that he is the father of this replicant child. And then he gets took, and then we find out who the replicant kid is, and and and, and the world's a better place. Um, how much were you able to follow the plot on your first watch through? Oh, my first watch through, almost not at all. Uh, which was a huge turnoff because you know visually, obviously, I was super drawn in by what I was watching, but it was was hard to really resonate with what was going on because the narrative itself is kind of all over the place. I mean, Jared Leto's was that you said it earlier correctly? Jared Leto, singular. Jared Leto's <laughs> character is like tripping balls for like the good introduction of his. So it, it's kind of hard to figure out who he is, what he's about and all that. Uh, I mean, there's just so many, like, whispered scenes that, without subtitles, which is, fortunately, I had to watch this, it was very hard to follow. Um, but, you know, the more you watch it, obviously, the the more you understand it. But even now, like, third time I've watched it, I don't follow, you know, all the minute details that are said throughout, but, you know, you understand the story enough to follow along. I will say it's been long enough since my last watch of this that it kind of surprised me because, you know, spoiler alert, I don't know why we still have to do that, but spoiler alert, Ryan Gosling's character throughout the movie thinks he is the the replicant born from, you know, a replicant mother, and he is the one, all that, uh, and I was like, yeah, he's the one, I remember this, you know, like, that's it, and then, you know, it turns out he isn't. He just is the one who's, you know, gonna keep this thing going, you know, he sacrificed himself, whatever. I totally forgot that aspect and was, like, blown away by the twist that I already knew and had seen twice, but it surprised me yet again and actually made this a, a much more enjoyable watch because of that. And And what I love about this film is what it or what I appreciate most about this film as a uh, a I don't know sequel to the book in some ways, or or as a as a part of that book's universe, is that it plays with this question of humanity from Ryan Gosling, because the whole point of the book, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," is like is Deckard a uh, an android, yes, but also what does it mean to be human? You know, as as the character Deckard goes throughout the book retiring um, androids, he's constantly left to ask himself, like uh, one of the characters he sent to kill is an opera singer, and he sits there and he's like, well, she creates art, like she she provides something to the society, she's contributing in a certain type of way that not everybody can, like, is that not human? You know, and there's this constant battle within him about what is and is not humanity and whether he is or is not a human himself because it's so tough to tell. And while it doesn't necessarily touch on the humanity overarching theme so much because I, I can't imagine how difficult that must be to do. Um, it does a great job of creating a constant stream of doubt in what Ryan Gosling's character is. And that is so refreshing because it's the most important part of the book that was missing from the original film. And people have gone back and looked at the original film and found little things that were like, well, maybe Deckard's an android or whatever. But it's, it's having it be a recurring theme, not just like something that you kind of doubt a little bit. Having it be on the forefront of the movie as you move through it and force you to ask questions of, the character, but also of kind of a more generally speaking society is what the book was trying to do. And what I think the movie does a relatively good job of, of, of doing as well. Because if, if Ryan Gosling is human and you sit on that side of it for a while, which the film has you do for a while, then like everything that's happening in the world's fucked up. 
You know, like they've got humans convinced the robots going off to kill other humans that think they're robots that were being used as slaves. Like, if that's if this is the case, like like there's a whole host of things that are fucked up in society beyond repair. Um, and the fact that it you know again just makes you ask these types of questions is something that I just greatly appreciate that Venice uh, Villanueva was was able to, to kind of get out from. Uh, the incredible lack thereof that the book had, that the uh, that the original film had. Man, I I am so excited for uh, Denis Villeneuve to come out with Dune this year. After seeing, oh, it. I forgot that. Oh my god! Like I like seeing him do this and what he's able to do with this visually. Like, I don't think, you know, Dune is going to be anywhere close to as colorful as this because that's not Dune. But, oh, my God, I'm so excited for that. I Like, you know, I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan. I'm a huge Quentin Tarantino fan. You know, Denis Villeneuve, though, like, I, every film he's come out with, you know, you know, his English language films, I should say, you know, his feature length, you know, AAA films have been perfection um and i'm so excited for that to come out oh yeah me too i was um i also highly recommend while we're just on the subject of dune um uh the the bio not the bio the um the documentary about um alejandro hodorowski's attempt at making it um which looked amazing um when if you get a chance to watch the documentary it's a fascinating ride through what he was planning on doing Huh? What was the title of it? I missed it. Um, I think it's just called uh, Hodorowski's Dune. Gotcha. Great movie. Um, they're a great documentary, and also a great reason to 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 freshen up on some Alejandro Hodorowski films because those are fucking madness. Did I ever show you um, Holy Mountain? I don't think so. Did I ever? I know. I never showed you El Topo. No. Oh, buddy, it's a ride. <laughs> oh no, that might have to be one of my picks now. Soon, those are those are tough. Um, just I remember showing um, image searching. The title of that is wow. Uh, which which one? Uh, Hodorowski's Dune. Oh, let me look up the look up what the the cover is. It is, oh yeah, it, it's some trip. It is some definite trippy, trippiness. My favorite piece of information that you'll find out from the film is that um, Hodorowski wanted to get Salvador Dali to be in the picture, um, oh. and Salvador Dali demanded to be paid, um, I think like a hundred thousand dollars an hour, <laughs> and they were like, we could not afford this, and so Hodorowski was like. And he's like, I got to match crazy with crazy. So he was like, no, I will pay you $100,000 a minute. And Salvador Dali was like, I love it. Let's do it. Um, and then he said his idea was he would have um, <laughs> Salvador Dali get his face scanned, which would take all of about five minutes. And then they would just put that face on like a mannequin. <laughs> and so he'd just get paid like $500,000 for like the day, which is hilarious. I, I like. I wish I was born this era where, like, being into film and also being into psychedelic drugs just led you to be like, at whatever this ends up being. Because, like, just the the guys that came out of this era, you know, are just. This is a whole different level of you know uh, consciousness. And wow, to be a part of it must have been awesome. I I literally can't even imagine. Oh yeah. Um, I don't think I have too much else to say on Blade Runner twenty forty nine. My main two things that I have, I really didn't take a lot of notes, not because I wasn't looking for them this time, but only because of, in my opinion, how the film is structured, I think lends itself better to being the experience um 
Uh, so I think I've laid myself out there in terms of how I think of it. Um, yeah. I do you mean, have anything I, else left? I definitely agree. And like, I, you know, from the start knew I was not going to take many notes on this just because you need to immerse yourself in this film as much as you can. Um, and I really didn't want to distract myself from having to like take out my phone and write stuff down while things were going on. Also, because you would miss so much if they whisper like three words that you just missed. Um, yeah, I really would love if someone could remix this film and re release it on 4K. That would be awesome. Uh, send me a download, download link, please, when you do. Um, but yeah, what an experience this film is. All right, give me a rating and review. Oh, uh, man, I want so badly to give this a five out of five. Um, I can't, you know, it's like I said, visually it's, it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen, uh, regardless of, you know, platform. Um, you know, this is Roger Deakins at his absolute best. And when you say that about someone with such a rich history, that's, you know, such a wild compliment. Um, this, you know, technically speaking is, you know, near perfect the audio is inexcusable and you know as much as the narrative isn't exactly streamlined or straightforward i really can't hold any of it against itself just because of the way you experience this movie and the way it makes you think and feel and just you know that intrigue drags you deeper into the world um and I think it just, it adds so much. Um, man, I, I have to give it a four out of five because of the audio. I want so badly to give it a five. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe I can, you know, get over it someday and, and promote this to a perfect film, but it's not quite there just yet. I'm, I'm I feel so bad about like holding that like small detail against it so much, but go ahead. Uh, I, I'm, I'm waffling between the three and a half and the four. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy the ride that this movie puts you on, but it is still two hours and 45 minutes when there's not quite enough plot to justify it being two hours and 45 minutes. Again, I thoroughly enjoy the visual train that we are we are running on here, but at the same time, it's a there's certainly fat that can be trimmed from this. Um, in addition to the audio quirks, we'll say, um, and I'll I'll, I'll say the uh, plot kind of rushing to a conclusion at the end. I really like this film, and I don't think the time should dissuade people from watching it, as uh, Denis Villeneuve, or however you pronounce the name, I'm bad at this, and he's not here to correct me, so I'm sorry. Um, he he believed that the, the runtime was a reason as to people why people didn't see it in theaters to the degree that he was hoping, um, which I think is valid on both ends of that argument. Um, yeah. Uh, I think also Damn. because, you know, it's a sequel to a movie that came out a long time ago and not many people saw and or liked and, you know, probably didn't realize it's very much a standalone movie in its own right. Yeah, if you're if, if you're uh, uh, debating watching this because you haven't seen the first, it, uh, it does not fucking matter. It As someone who, who has seen the original film and read the book, it doesn't fucking matter at all. Um... I'm 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 gonna go I'm gonna go three and a half uh, just to pick a different number than you did. That's my only reason. Touche, touche. I don't agree with it, but touche. Uh, all right, what do you got for next week, Josh? You know how we do things here. You got to pick a number. Ah, uh, that's right. I pick twelve. Shit, I forgot to bring my list up in time. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. <laughs> oh man, what I even? All right, you gotta you gotta talk while I. Fi- oh, here we go. What'd you pick? Twelve. <laughs> 12. Ooh, we're going back to Vietnam, my friend. Platoon. Oh my god, Platoon. Alright. I haven't watched that in forever. I honestly think I've seen that movie 20 times. Fair. Fair, fair, fair. 
All right. Um, I'm between two, and I don't know what to do because I've kind of wanted to pick the Holy Mountain for a while. Um, but at the same time, um, I kind of also want to pick National Treasure. You want to just do both? <laughs> and have, what, three movies? Yeah. Fuck it, yeah, sure, why not? How long? Is, uh, how long is Holy Mountain? What is it? Uh, it's yeah, it's called the Holy Mountain. Um, it's I have the page up. I just under two hours long. So standard film length. Um, and trust me, my friend, we're not going to have too much to say about it. <laughs> All right, I there will be a very it. constructive conversation that takes place afterwards. All right, you you're in. Sure, I'm with it. All right, all right. We're going to watch National Nick Cage's Finest Hour in National Treasure and Alejandro Hodorowski's masterpiece, The Holy Mountain. Um, all right, I'm excited for this. This is going to be a great episode next. We have three wildly different films. Yeah, for real. Oh, my God. It's going to be a great episode. Um, all right, any, any final thoughts before we get out of here? Um, I, no, I, I got nothing. All right. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at JuicingPod. If you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at JuicingTheNumbers at gmail.com. And until Monday, y'all have a good one. Bye.